Well, as we enter into our um, continued worship for the preaching of God's word, I first invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you again for your mercy that you've extended to us in Christ. We come this morning to uh, confess our frailty, our, our weakness, our propensity to sin. We come to confess our great need for you moment by moment to build us up, uh, to grant us capacity to walk in righteousness, to know you, and to worship you well. Knowing that our sins are paid in full as those who are hidden in Christ, um, redeemed, purchased, um, sealed by the indwelling spirit. Yet as we tried this fallen world, we know that um, we are, are prone to sin and as an offense to you as a, a breaking of intimacy with you. And so our hearts come to cry out because you teach it is teach us that it is good for our souls that we confess to you. And we confess with great joy, great hope and great anticipation of our continued sanctification and our one day joyous um, reality of being face to face with you, our God. Um, and so we come with hopeful hearts, joyous hearts, confessing and uh, uh, acknowledging and exalting the fact that we are completely dependent upon you and you are eternally faithful to your people. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to begin our study of the book of Acts and I wanted to take this opportunity as we begin to venture into the book of Acts just to do a little short introduction. And I'm, I'm oh, I'm sorry, I'm talking, I'm saying Acts. Well, no, I, didn't, I didn't understand what I was saying. Yes, as we finished up Acts and now entering into the book of Ephesians, I apologize. I'm so sorry. Um, I want to give a little just brief introduction, just a couple of um, facts that will help us work our way through Ephesians. And then enter into the, the prologue just a little. So we'll do verses one and two again in kind of an introductory format. But first, I want to just take a moment to read chapter one. Uh, the book of Ephesians is rich with doctrine. It's been uh, said that um, the book of Romans was really Paul's magnus opus, and, and rightly so. But it's also been said that the book of Ephesians is truly Paul's crown writing, and I believe that is rightly so. It is a crown jewel of Paul. This is Paul at his uh, apostolic best, and it is replete with glorious, glorious doctrine of our riches in Christ. And so I always want to encourage you to go back and read just as we were working through Acts, again, a totally different type of book um, in terms of historical narrative. And now we're going to very much a uh, didactic book, um, a, a theological little uh, journey. But it's always healthy to, to read, to go back and read and to read forward and so I try to encourage you in that as we're working through the books to do that also with, with your Bible reading, wherever you might be and whatever other Bible reading you're doing beyond uh, whatever book we're studying. But I do encourage you to try to at least go back to that book, read what we've just gone over or read ahead or do a little of both. And so I want to try to emphasize that again with Ephesians particularly you would do well to go back and read and reread this book, especially just the way it's written, what it is, uh, how it fits in our walk as Christians. This is a monumental, doctrinally rich book. It's kind of, it's, it's who we are in Christ in a nutshell. It's everything that belongs to us in Christ and then how we're to lay hold of that day by day as we walk this journey of Christians, this side of glory. So it, it's, it's the little um, uh, cliff notes of all the Christian life right here. 
And it's so monumental in its language that it just necessitates that we read it over and over and over. So I want to try to emphasize that again as we start uh, Ephesians here. I always want to encourage you to read through the books that we're reading and go back and redo it and reread. It's going to help you as you go along. But especially if you're not doing that, take a moment and consider to do it uh, as we work through this little short book of Ephesians. Just continue to go through it over and over and over. So let me begin saying that. Let me begin by reading the first chapter to us just to get a little feel for the language of Ephesians. Again, this is the Apostle Paul here, and he begins chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And that beloved there is referring to Christ. In him, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to all the administration suitable to the fullness of the time that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we were the first to hope in Christ, who would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with all view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I, too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. Wow. Wow. Amen. Wow. If you're here, this moment, this little plot of land, this moment in space and time that God has created, that is speaking of you. If you're here, as a follower of Jesus Christ, a blood-bought, genuine follower of Jesus Christ, sitting here in this little place in the middle of nowhere, at this tumultuous time, on this terrestrial ball, in this linear reality that God has created and will bring to a consummate end, that is speaking of you. Could you believe that? Could you imagine such riches could belong to sinners like us? 
That is who we are in Christ. And that's just chapter one. What a God. What a salvation. Um, it's been said of Ephesians that it was John Calvin's favorite book in the Bible. And 15, from 1557 to 1558, he, he's preached 48 sermons from this book. Wow. And just days before November 24, 1572, when John Knox died, which was John Calvin's grand understudy, John Knox would have his wife come in by his, uh, on his deathbed by his bedside and read John Knox's sermons on Ephesians 2 over and over and over. It is a glorious book filled with great hope. So Paul is the author of Ephesians. Now, we've just worked through Acts, and, and admittedly, I, I haven't done a good job as we were working towards the end of Acts of bringing us back to timelines. We really worked on timelines earlier on in Acts. And as we got uh, started following Paul there on his final days and his journey into Rome, I really didn't track well with the timelines for you. So hopefully uh, that said, we can pick up well here. So Working off of Acts, now Paul wrote Ephesians. Do you know when he wrote Ephesians? Anybody know? Okay, if I said from uh, AD 60 to AD 62, would that help you? Where does that put him? Corinth. I'm sorry? <laughs> Was he in Corinth? No, not, not in Corinth. But uh, Corinth has been in the journey for sure. So 60 to 62, roughly. And that's uh, almost three-year span. When I say 60 to 62, that's almost a three-year span there, really. Um, he was in house arrest. Where? Rome. So Ephesians is written while Paul is chained to a Roman soldier under house arrest in Rome. And as we work through this language of Ephesians, now that's a pretty tough situation for Paul. That's not, uh, as we were talking earlier this morning in our morning Bible study, that's not circumstantially a good time, a good season of Paul's life. That's a tough circumstantial time. Anytime you're in prison, you know, it's not necessarily the greatest season of your life. So that was a rough road. We were talking about David's rough roads earlier. Uh, and, and, you know, Mark mentioned that reality. Sometimes it's, it's in those, if you will, often valleys or difficulties of life or tough circumstances of life when God is most prominent and present and real to us, when our hearts are attuned to him. And we certainly at least see the evidence of that in Paul's writing here. His circumstances were not good, but his heart was somewhere far removed from his current, the current climate of his circumstances being chained to a Roman guard under house arrest. His heart was soaring away with the reality of who he is in Christ. And that's what we have here in Ephesians, who we are in Christ. So he's the author here, Paul. And it's, it's fun to know when he wrote it, because that gives us a lot of uh, emphasis on just the nature of this book. And looking back and seeing Paul in those circumstances with his heart just overflowing with joy of who he is in Christ. So I want to give you just a little um, preview, just a little thing, a couple of things to, to hang your hat on here in terms of how as, as we start to introduce ourselves to the book. And then, again, we'll look at the prologue, just, just the first two verses. And I just want to do that kind of, uh, again, in an introductory fashion. We'll go back and we'll pick up the two verses again. Uh, Lord willing, on next time, kind of work them in uh, as, as we kind of begin to take a little a, a starting off point there in Ephesians, really with uh, verse 3. But we'll, we'll work verses 1 and 2 back in as well, as if, uh, if I'm able 
So primary theme of the book of Ephesians is this. Now, it's been it's hard to try to nail that down and put it to language. So that's been worded lots of ways. I'm going to go with this and it's not mine. I'm working off of, uh, you know, standing on the shores of giants that have gone before us long ago. But let's at least for us here to get a jumping point, a starting point, uh, a place to kind of dig our heels in and take off with Ephesians. The theme of the book is Christ, the exalted Lord. Now, there's much to hang on that, but that's at least something that we can start with. That's that's starting blocks that we can come out the gate with. So the primary driving theme is Christ, the exalted Lord. Now, the secondary driving theme and really where we'll spend much of our time is this. It's got to come back and it has to connect to Christ, the exalted Lord. But the secondary driving theme is the express benefits of the church that flow out of the sovereign grace of Christ, the exalted Lord. So that's really where we're going to be kind of, you know, trying to to lay our hands on and and work through and mold and shape our hearts uh, or have it mold and shape our hearts as we go through this book is that reality. So here's the driver. Christ is the exalted Lord. And then Ephesians is going to tell us everything about who we are and what belongs to us, the riches of our inheritance that belong to us as a result of being those who have been purchased out by Christ, the exalted Lord. So it speaks in every way imaginable of the spiritual riches of our inheritance, our inheritance in Christ as adopted sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, adopted sons and daughters of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his atoning work on our behalf. So here's what I want you to know, and, and never let go of this as we continue all through this book. Every line of every sentence of every paragraph of every chapter, hold on to this. All the fullness of the riches of our inheritance in Christ are on display in the book of Ephesians. All of them. Ephesians Ephesians just continuously rolls us through this reality. All the riches that belong to us in Christ. All the riches of our inheritance. They are on full display in this book. And it is because... That we are one with Christ and his church. This fullness is ours. So as we are one with Christ, we are also one with this church. We are part of the body of Christ. And because we are part and we were part of the body of Christ, because we are made right with God through Christ. We are one with Christ and thus we are one with his church. Thus we are one with one another. And this is why. We have this fullness. This is why we hold this inheritance, because we are one with Christ. We are the redeemed. Because we are the redeemed, all the fullness of the riches of the inheritance of the glory of his grace is ours. Let's just think about that for a second, because it's easy for me to just rattle that off, right? And it flows well, doesn't it? But we have to pause. That has to be a pause for us. If we're just here at the introduction of Ephesians, we're just going to kind of introduce ourselves to this book. There we have to pause. It's hard to soak in. This is our reality. Let me read this to you again. Because we are the redeemed, because we have been purchased by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, because his atoning work on the cross that pays the sin debt for sinners who repent and believe on him, who repent towards God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those people and all generations throughout all time are then sealed by the atoning work of Christ or then sealed in Christ and his forgiveness then are made right, justified before a holy God and, and, and progressively sanctified throughout time until they are glorified forever in eternal heaven and glory with God. That's what I mean by the redeemed. And as we live out our Christian lives and all the frailty of our fleshly bodies, 
and all the weakness of our fading minds and, and all the, as our, as our bodies age and decay right before our eyes, as the redeemed in this fallen world, we possess all the fullness of the riches of the inheritance of the glory of his grace. All of it belongs to you. If you are here, a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, every bit of it. And that is, that's beyond what we can imagine, is it not? That's beyond the capacity of our thought. We're filled with the fullness of God's unsearchable riches. So that goes beyond what we're able to comprehend, but it's no less true. We have spiritual wealth in Christ that soars beyond our grandest thoughts. You take us on our best day and our grandest thoughts that we could possibly have in terms of what it means to possess the fullness of the riches of the glory of Christ. And we can do very little with that. But it's ours. It's ours for the possessing. It's ours for the taking. It's ours for the living out. To the glory of God. So our spiritual will is secured in and based upon God's sovereign will. We find that in chapter 1, verse 5, God's grace. Chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, God's glory. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. God's power. Chapter 1, verse 19. God's love. Chapter 2, verse 4. God's good pleasure. Chapter 1, verse 9. God's purpose. Chapter 1, verse 11, God's calling, chapter 1, verse 18, and God's workmanship, chapter 2, verse 10. And they could, we could go on and on, but there's just a little for you. That is just a little snapshot of what secures us, of this, what gives us security in this spiritual wealth, how it's secured and what it's based upon. All the majesty of God. Now, here's how the book breaks up for us. So it kind of breaks up into two parts. So chapters one through three is really the riches that we have in Christ, the spiritual riches, what they are. So we'll, the first three chapters, we're going to look at, at what they are. What are the spiritual riches that belong to us and all their fullness in Christ? And then chapters four through six tells us what we do with them, how we use them. What is our responsibility for possessing such spiritual wealth? So that's how the book breaks up for us. What are they? What are these spiritual riches and how do we use them? But note this, they're all ours because we are in Christ. We're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the church. And you're going to see in Ephesians now, the church has, has been, there's been, various images concerning the church, but primarily in scripture, the church is referred to as a body, right? And that's the imagery of the church that we often find in scripture. The church is seen as a body. It's pictured as a body. And we see that in chapter three, verse six here, uh, specifically very distinctly pictured as a body, not as an organization. Although there should be organizational aspects to the church gathered visibly, but as what? What is the body? The body is an organism, right? And so that's really the heart of the imagery when we see the church being pictured as a body. That's the imagery that she's an, an organism, a working, living organism with various parts that are all connected together, uh, working together for one uh, ultimate purpose. So we're pictured here as an organism. The body is described as an organism, and it's described this way to demonstrate that we are all one in Christ, united in the life of God through the atoning work of Christ. That's the imagery of the body. That's why. So the body pictures, yes, it's, it's good to see, and we, we have those examples for us that make a lot of sense. Well, uh, the body has it's made up of hands, and it's made up of toes, and it's made up of, of uh, eyes and hair, and we all work together. So we all function together, and we see that unity. But behind that, the great spiritual picture, because we're possessing all the riches of Christ in all his glory, the picture behind that organism of a body is this. We're all one in Christ. We're united in the life of God 
through his atoning blood. You see, because there's a reason that we have these spiritual riches and there's a way that we are to use them. So that's what we are doing, working together as this organism. We're living out this reality of our oneness in Christ, united in the life of God through the atoning blood of Christ. So the body pictures the fullness of Christ incarnate in his church. Now Christ took on flesh, was born a virgin birth. Under the law of God, lived out a perfect life as the unique God-man. He took on flesh. He didn't reduce any of his godness. He simply added flesh. And that we, that we refer to as the incarnate Christ. And now Christ goes to the cross. He makes atonement for all who repent and believe on him. He dies that atoning death where his righteousness might then be be imputed into the lives of those who believe on him. And their sin debt is borne out in his body, where God the Father pours out his righteous wrath on the Son. He is buried, he's resurrected on the third day, and ascended to glory as prophesied. So that's our picture of the incarnate Christ. But I want you to understand, now the incarnate Christ, this side of the resurrection, this side of his incarnate life, as he walked this earth as the son of God, the unique God-man. Now this side of the resurrected and now enthroned in glory, Christ, is the reality of is his incarnation in the church. We now are the body of Christ. The incarnate Christ is now living and breathing fully in us in all his splendid glory. So Christ is now incarnate in his church, if you will. We are in one with Christ, possessing the life of God, united in Christ. Now, I know at this point, it's just, that's too much. So, well, that's too much, brother. It sounds good. There's too much to comprehend. It's too much to try to eat, to try to, to even ponder. So it's like, we, we just need to stop here. I know we need to stop. We can't, we can't just stop. There's more. Take Ephesians and read this. Just flood your mind. Even if you're like, whoa, you have to stop. Say, that's too much. And go back. And just read this truth to you because it's hard to really sell into our souls that this is really true of us. But it is. We are one in Christ, possessing the life of God, united in Christ. Now that said, let me just go to the prologue and just work through some basics of the first two verses, okay? Because the prologue in itself is just loaded this is front load. This is just a, you think it's a front loaded book, but it just never stops. So let's just tackle a little bit of the language in the prologue uh, this morning, and then, and then we can try to try to, to get after this book a little bit. It, it's the, the language is too rich. It's, it's too glorious. Look over there in verse one, Paul. So I want you to see the apostle there. This is Paul. He's going to introduce himself. Now, his apostleship has been questioned uh, various ways uh, uh, throughout his, his uh, life as an apostle. Uh, from the moment that he declared himself to be an apostle of Christ and why he declared himself and how he did, uh, it's been questioned. It's been questioned by uh, lofty uh, scholars from the 19th century on in uh, every, every corner of the world, you know, his real apostleship of uh, even of Paul being the, the, the actual author of Ephesians. So uh, that's endless. It goes on and on. But here's the reality. Paul begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he declares who he is right up front. And it's kind of this, this double win. It's, the, the incarnate Christ, the Son of God, and God the Father. Both are, uh, are both there declaring my uh, being an apostle of Christ. 
So this is his credentials right up front. So you, so you want to know about my apostleship? Well, my apostleship is this. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's his credentials. Not bad, huh? Not bad credentials. This is who he is. He's an apostle of Christ by the will of God. So apostolos, the, the term there, apostle, is really a sent one or a commissioned one that the term um, was used in the Greek language prior. It was always uh, used for military conquest, uh, naval conquest or military conquest, an expedition. And it was sent with a, a very definitive mission. So when it was used in the culture at large and in the Greek language at large, that's how you would find it. There's really not a close Hebrew equivalent to that term. But the closest one is a Hebrew term that was used uh, for someone who was an ambassador, particularly an ambassador for the high priest. Now, do we know anyone that was an ambassador for the high priest at some time in their career? Saul. Yeah, Saul was, wasn't he? So here he's an apostle. And again, there's not a real Hebrew equivalent, but the closest is an ambassador, one that is commissioned and sent by the high priest. And so he was just that. He was an ambassador of the high priest. He had a role to serve as a high priest. So you remember there was a time when Saul was given that official paper, right? And he was sent on a little journey. And the scripture tells us on his little journey, he was going to persecute Christians, right? People of the way. And then we find him in the book of Acts, where? With his little paper commission from the high priest on the Damascus Road, right? And there on the Damascus Road, Jesus Christ, of whom he is now an apostle. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ met him and revealed himself to him. And he said to him, Paul, why did you persecute me? And there on the Damascus Road, Paul had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He met his Savior. He met the Christ in this unique, monumental way. And later on, Saul would change his name to Paul. You know why? You know why we know him as now as the Apostle Paul? You know why he changed his name? You know why he did that? It's marked off that we went through it in Acts. It's marked off definitively. Not just, I know he was a point man to the, to the apostles. That's true. And so that was more, or excuse me, a point man to the, to the uh, Gentiles. That's true. Uh, and that's more of a Gentile uh, name. So, you know, it might fit into his context, but you know why he did it? You know what scripture tells us why he did it? That's right. It marked him off. He changed his name because at that encounter at the Damascus Road, Saul died. The old man was put to death and the new man was resurrected into glorious life. And he said, you know, I'm marking myself off by name based on that encounter because there I was saved. There God Almighty transformed me. There he brought me from spiritual death to spiritual life. There the Savior met me. There the Savior snatched me from spiritual death and brought me into spiritual life, into his glorious life. There the Savior came and rescued me. And now this ambassador of the high priest is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a sent one, one commissioned with a definitive mission. And he certainly had that. Now Paul operates as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's received uh, a commission from Christ. Now there were uh, how many apostles of Christ? Okay, 13, 13, if we, if we count matters, yes. Okay, how many total? 14, there we go. 14, right, so you got the original 12. Commissioned uh, personally by, by, by Christ. And then we have the unique situation, right? So uh, um, 
So we have a 13th added in, right? Why? Why? What happened? Right? Judas betrayed Christ, right? So Judas part of the original 12, right? So now Judas is, has, uh, Judas is excommunicated. So one's added in. Who's added in? Yes. And then we have one more here. So that's 13, right? If you count them all, that's 13. And then we have one more, Paul, which is 14. So it's 14 apostles of Christ altogether. Paul was added in. Now, how is Paul added in that? Personal encounter. Yes. And a little later in the game, right? And Paul will speak to that. But a little later in the game. So what marks them off? There's some, there are certain aspects to the apostles of Christ. Do, are, are they alive today? Is that, is that office alive? Is that office working and operative in the church today? No. Has the, the notion that it's still operative in the church today caused us much problems? Has it? Yes, it has. My goodness, it has. Oh, how this, this title here of apostle of Christ has been abused in the church throughout the years. To lord authority over people, to misuse the spiritual gifts given by God in the church, to take the church and all her, her, her beauty and splendor and worth and riches and to um, superimpose false man-made notions upon her pulled from this language has been abusive and shameful over the years. Absolutely shameful and harmful to sheep within the fold. So there's the apostles of Christ. There they are. You know, all 14. I'm very proud of God. I got all 14. That was good. Excellent job. Um, they had a special commission, did they not? They were with full authority spokesmen of who? Christ. How do we see that displayed even to this day in the fullest measure? Scripture, right? These were uh, the writers of the New Testament, right? Of which Paul wrote most. And here he is, one added, as Paul would say, an untimely manner. I was kind of the stepchild uh, apostle of Christ. I was added later. But yet, uh, used in a profound way. So the apostles of Christ are a unique 14 men that serve Christ in a unique way, serve God in a unique way, for a, in a unique era of linear space and time that God has created. That era is gone. So they were scripture writers. Their ministry, though, it was marked off, right? It was marked off as unique, right? Because they're marked off as unique uh, uh, men set apart for a unique purpose. Much of that, which is to pen the New Testament, be the vessels through which God, the Holy Spirit, would inspire and pen the New Testament. So, what marked their um, their apostleship? What were they, what was their uh, ministry marked by? Because they're really ambassadors and they're spokesmen for Christ, and they're going to be point men, particularly Paul, for the gospel moving beyond the Jewish world into the Gentile world at large. So how were they marked off? They have special powers. Yes or no? No. Okay. Maybe it's a bad question. They have unique power and unique gifting. Yes. They did. Okay. Can you name some of them? Yes. So they could, they, they had miracle powers, right? And how would that manifest mostly? Miraculous powers. How would that manifest? Uh, how that manifest in Scripture? What do we see with their miraculous powers they had? Healing. Anything else? What else happened? Tongues. One more specific. Starts with a P. Prophecy. Prophecy. Okay. Uh, so mark those down because you need to know this era and what was unique about it and what happened. They had miraculous powers that marked off their being apostles of Christ, and this is how we see it in Scripture every time. Those three, okay? Healing and prophecy, right? And tongues, okay? Now, Paul, we know this. An interesting thing happened to Paul there in the book of Acts. We tracked. Um, Paul, remember when Paul found those 12 disciples and they were poorly discipled? They just knew a little bit of John the Baptist and they didn't even know about the feeling of the Holy Spirit. You remember them? 
And then Paul comes and he informs them. And what does he do? Now, again, there was a miraculous work here. It was unique to Paul. You remember that? What does he do? What happened to them after he after he, he filled them out on the full discipleship of what it meant to be a disciple of Christ? These were men whose hearts, uh, and it's part of their picture. They're part of being a picture for God intentionally to seeing the gospel, the full Christianity, the full reality of the indwelling spirit of God and the full trusting of Christ belonging to Gentiles and going to the Gentile world. It's a very specific, pointed part of Scripture where we see that transition. And God marked it off using the apostle Paul, and he marked it off in a very unique way. Paul meets this guy, and he fills him in on what it means to, uh, to have the indwelling spirit. That's now poured out in full on the church. And what does he do? He puts his hands on them. And when he puts his hands on them, what happened? He conferred the Holy Spirit to him. That's unique. Y'all remember that? That happened to Paul. That's unique. He laid his hands on them and conferred. And it was a unique situation, a unique moment. But still, that's a miraculous power that belonged to an apostle of Christ. Y'all remember that? That's unique. This is a unique era. These are unique men set apart for a unique calling. So they had these special powers. And Paul knew full well that his apostleship came from God. He knew it full well. Certainly these other men did too. But Paul knew it full well, although he was added in an untimely fashion. Listen to Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You think Paul knew? You think he knew what God did to him? You think he knew this unique office that he had? You think he knew that he was Apostle Christ when he comes here to Ephesians? And he's questioned along the way, all the way about this. When he comes here and he's, he's writing to Ephesians, he's chained. This is a guy chained. It doesn't look good on the surface. Now he's chained to a Roman guard. But he's writing and he's writing with all authority. Because what we have to understand is this is he's a spokesman for God. What he's writing here is the word of God. This is not Paul's opinions. This is not Paul, uh, uh, Paul uh, musing back about his, about his voyage and, uh, and writing a fantasy here. This is the inspired word of God. This is God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring this man to pen the words of God. This is not opinion. This is the authority of God Almighty given to this man and other scripture writers uniquely. And here we see him as part of the apostles of Christ. 14 men ultimately set off in a unique era of time for a unique calling and purpose. Now, is that era finished again? Just so we're clear. Yes. When did it end? Scripture was death of the lost apostle. Yes. Yes, both both are good answers. Both are true. The, the, The combination of it was definitely... The, the, the ending of the, the, uh, of the canon of Scripture, the, the, the writing of the New Testament, that, that was, had to happen. But now these men were marked off in space and time as apostles of Christ. Now, so let's say uh, the last one standing doesn't uh, die after the final pinning of the Scripture. Is he still an apostle of Christ? He is. So when they die. Are they dead? Are they all dead? Have they been resurrected? No. This age is over. It's done. The age of the apostles of Christ are is finished. They are dead and it's come to a close. And they fulfilled the mission that God had set before them and empowered them to fulfill. And we see it fulfilled most uniquely and most fully, and this particular apostle who was added late. That being Paul, because he is the one who was used by God to be point man into the, into the uh, Gentile world and to be a primary scripture writer of the New Testament. So he had a little bit of a unique role among them. And he knew this. He understood it. He's, he's, there's no doubt here when he introduces himself in Galatians 1.1. He knows exactly what God has called him to do. He knows exactly how God has marked him off. He has no doubt. And he'll go on in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 through, uh, 6 through 8, and he says it again very clearly there 
as he's one, even he knows, still knows, even though he's apostle, that was um, added later, added as the apostle of Christ, and untimely born, as he would say. Listen to the language here. After that, this is after Christ's resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now, there are some eyewitnesses. By the way, I don't want I'm sorry, I can't get sidetracked too much, but let me just say this, by the way, because we are in a, this age of technology is just, it's just, I mean, it's going at light speed. And I know I'm the old fogey. So, so, so try to remove that. I am the old fogey. And, and I, I, so I'm, it's not, this is not me pushing back against technology. But let me just say this. We are going, just be sober on this. You're going to need to go back to eyewitnesses. Because they can doctor more stuff with video than, than we can even begin to wrap our minds around right now. And that's going to increase. You better advocate for eyewitnesses and stick to your guns. Here's some eyewitnesses for you. 500 brethren saw the resurrected Christ. There's a testimony at one time. Most of them, and this is Paul in context here, most of them remain until now, but some of them fall asleep. And Paul's saying at the time when he's writing this here, the, the Corinthians, that some of these people are dead, but they are dead already, but they were uh, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And he's referring to appeared to him and set him apart as an apostle of Christ. That's his point. So there's the 14. And this is a double authority here for Paul as apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Do you see that there in verse one? It's the apostle of Jesus Christ. It's by the will of God. That's kind of like a double whammy. Father and Son, right here, setting me apart and giving me this authority. So Paul's authority comes from the fullness of God the Father and the resurrected incarnate Christ. Paul's an apostle according to full authority of God. And he is a spokesman for God. His word is authoritative, period, for all men, everywhere, all time. Period. So again, Ephesians is not Paul's opinion. It is the authoritative word of God. Paul is speaking with the authority of God. Listen to and this is this is the language here in 1 Corinthians 9:1. This is Paul. Again, you know, and the, and the, the Corinthians kind of short, a little sorely with him there. You know, they, just, they were a little upset with him. He had, some, he had a little dust up there with him. But listen, listen with him as he takes liberty concerning his authority. He full well knows his role. Listen to what he says to them in 1 Corinthians 9.1. And maybe a little sarcasm here, but uh, you'll see the point. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? There's the question. So that's a rhetorical question. Both of them. I am free. And I'm free because I'm an apostle of Christ with full authority. So what I'm writing to you is the word of God. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? There's a marker, right? The resurrected Christ. What about the apostle of Christ? That's a marker, right? They had to see the resurrected Christ. So he fits that, but one untimely. Why? When did he see the resurrected Christ? When Paul said that was the mask. That was the mask, right? That was later. But yet still that marks him off. So he still fits that category. That's that's a requirement. Apostles of Christ. So he asked him again, because hey, don't you know this who I am? Have I not seen? Jesus, our Lord, he's referring to the resurrected Christ. Are you not my work in the Lord? Is there not evidence of real Christians there in Corinth that have come to the truth under Paul's teaching? Yes. So he knows full well his role and who he is in Christ. Paul is not uh, uh, any fog here. He knows exactly what's going on, exactly what God has done in his life. So he's an apostle of Christ, sent one by the will of God. That's his credentials. He's a scripture writer, and his doctrine comes from divine revelation, as all scripture writers. He's an apostle of Christ. He's a special era and a special time and special duties. So let's look at them. What were the duties of the apostles of Christ? And this is, again, all of them, but Paul certainly as well. So we can mark these guys off and kind of know what happened there and the time that it happened and why it happened, and that it's over. So here were the duties, duties of apostles of Christ. 
to preach the gospel, we find that in 1 Corinthians 1.17. To teach and to pray, we find that in Acts 6.4. To perform miracles, we find that in 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. Now, again, this is, this is unique roles, unique duties. And to build leaders for the visible church, we find that in Acts 14.23. So that's their duties. You're not going to find another group of men. And there's leaders in the church. There's people that have uh, many of these responsibilities, but not all, right? Namely being what? The performing of miracles, right? So we still have folks that it's their duty to preach the gospel, is it not? Well, I'm one of the elders of this church, so I would have that duty. That carries over. We're to teach and we're to pray. Well, that really, that, that's every Christian, isn't it? Really, if you boil it down, that's every Christian. We're to pray and we're to teach. And if we're parents, we're teaching our children. And if we have uh, whatever our situation is in life, we're teaching truth. But we're not performing miracles. That was unique to the apostles of Christ. And Ephesians, in this book, in chapter 2, verse 20, tells us something very interesting about these men, these apostles of Christ. What were they? What does it say in Ephesians 2, 20? We really need to hang on to this. Anybody know? Well, it tells us there that they were the foundation of the church. So Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 20 is speaking about the church there, about the believers, the body of Christ, the brethren. And in reference to the brethren, it says, having built on the foundation, the church, having built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now, the apostles that's mentioned there in that text is the apostles of Christ. That term is used other places in the New Testament that would fit other roles, but not the apostles of Christ. This is referring to the apostles of Christ, and they are meant as a foundation for the church to build on. All the structures of the church, all the leadership, all the roles of the church built upon foundation that the apostles of Christ laid in their doctrine, which is the word of God. So that's who they are. That's who Paul is. That's how he identifies himself here. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now when you see the saints there in the last part of verse 1. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So saints, that, that the term saints is really just translates as to holy ones. Or hagioi, if you will. Now, help me here because in the Old Testament, because it says that they're, they're holy ones. That's what it means to be a saint, one who is holy. Now, in the Old Testament, holiness is attributed to who? We look at our Testament, which is the, the bulk of our Bible is the old, is an Old Testament. And all through the Old Testament, this notion of holiness is attributed to one being. And who is that being? God, right? So what is this business of saints? What does that term mean? Because it says holy ones. How's that work? Well, we find this term holiness in the Old Testament speaks of God. It speaks of God's unique otherness, of his apartness, apartness from his creation, which is everything that exists. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It speaks of his moral perfection. So who's this audience? Who are these these recipients of the Apostle Paul? These saints. So how related to Old Testament Israel as well, right? This this is kind of going to help us here a little bit because we do see that. So we look back in the Old Testament, we find God is holy. We find him set apart. He's apart from his creation. He's apart. He's separated by his moral perfection. But then there's Old Testament Israel, and they're separated too. They're separated and consecrated to God for God's service, right? And now how? How is Old Testament Israel set apart? Because they're, they're called a holy people. They're called a holy nation. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Deuteronomy 6, uh, 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 7, 6, uh, excuse me, 
Chapter 7, verse 6, Deuteronomy 26, 19, Jeremiah 2, 3. They're all they're right there. They're called a holy nation all the way through there. A holy people. And they are set apart. They're all consecrated to God for the service of God. But how? How was Old Testament Israel set apart? They were marked by circumcision, yes. How were they set apart unto holy? But circumcision did not allow them to be called a holy people. A particular animal sacrifice, which one? There were different kinds. Well, what was what was the sacrifice? There were different sacrifices. There was one particular that was used to set them apart. What's it called? What kind of sacrifice is that called? Propitiatory sacrifice. It is consecration, yes. That's a propitiatory sacrifice, right? How many times that happened? A year. One time. How long did it last? One day. One day. Day of atonement, right? Yeah. How long was it good for? One year. And it was pending, wasn't it? So I'm trying, it's kind of like on layaway. I'm just holding you over, putting you on layaway. I'm reminding you that you're sinners and your sin's not really covered. It's not atoned for. It's there. That's what we're having to sacrifice. But I'm just going to lay it over for a year. Then I'll lay it over again. And during that time, you're marked off officially. But man, are you in trouble? Because you're marked off as guilty. Right? So it's almost uh, a holy people-ish because it's pending. Yeah, that's credit, right? It's pending. What about these saints? Well, they're New Testament saints. Something change? Anything change? These saints are those justified and sanctified in Christ. In Christ. Made righteous in the righteousness of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.2. Romans 1.7. Romans 8.27. 2 Corinthians 1.1. Philippians 1.1. Colossians 1.2. All terms used to describe Christians in general. Those who reflect the holiness of God in their lives as a result of Christ's one-time propitiation on their behalf. Amen. Hallelujah, everyone. That's why he's writing to saints, because they've been atoned by their Savior, Jesus Christ, because Christ, the Son of God, has come down, wrapped himself in flesh, lived a perfect life, and went to die a vicarious death on the cross on their behalf. And there he paid their sin debt that they owed in full before God the Father, who is righteous and right to judge them righteously in his wrath. But it's so glorious in his grace, the apex of his being, the apex of his expression of himself, that he sent his son, that he might die for the sins of all who repent and believe on him. And there they've been bought out. There they've been atoned for. Now they're called saints, holy ones, because they're holy in Christ, who is holy on their behalf, who lived perfectly that he might die on their behalf and have the Father's righteous wrath poured out on him as a substitutionary atonement for their sin, for our sin, if we are genuinely here in Christ. Our sin, paid in full. And that Christ then might impute his righteousness earned under the law into their account. And now we see them referred to as saints, holy ones. Why? Because they're holy in Christ. So it's a general term used there in the New, in the New Testament, but it speaks of the result of Christ. Christ's one-time propitiation on our behalf. Those who have been consecrated by God to God. Listen to the language of Romans eleven thirty six. For from him, this is the result of that consecration. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So there are saints. The saints who are at Ephesus, and I'll speak to that language in just a moment at the end. But I want you to jump with me to 
The last part there, saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. They're faithful. What does that mean? It just means they're believing. These saints, these holy ones are believing. By believing, it means they act in faith towards Christ. That's why they're saints, because they're believing ones, those who have believed on Christ. So it's a personal reliance upon Christ that results from God's gift of faith. So God has given them a gift of faith. And, we, and as they receive that, we get to faith. It's a gift that they, we, that they act upon. So it's a faith given by God. And then it's a, an action that they take and rely upon this faith. So it's an action. It's a personal reliance. It's a faith in salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So these saints, these believers, these Christians, they live faithfully or believingly by exercising active and productive lives of faith because of the sovereignty of salvation that is evident in their daily lives. This is why they exercise faith. Now, note it says these um, faithful saints are in Ephesus. Well, if we look back to the older manuscripts, some, not all, but some of the older manuscripts, Ephesus is not in there. And again, as we look through this letter, you're going to see this very general. It's, it doesn't name names. It doesn't speak to someone specific. It's kind of a, uh, it has a generality about it. Uh, and so critics have jumped all over this over the years, but um, no need really. Uh, however, there is the absence of that, that note uh, to the Ephesians in some of the older manuscripts, some of the early ones. Now, the letter was meant to be a circular correspondence. It was meant to go around to the churches in that area. And there's a bunch, right? We're talking about Asia Minor, right? So there's a bunch of churches there, and Paul had his hand on all of this. And it was sent to Ephesus first. Now, possibly, as it's copied and sent on, they just leave a blank. And it's for the other churches to fill in their church if they want. And it's primarily to Ephesians, I mean, excuse me, to, to Gentile churches, primarily. This is a Gentile region where much work has been done. Nonetheless, so it was a circulatory letter that started in Ephesus. Um, as it was sent, you know, as it was as it was sent further on, maybe there was a blank there and, and you know, fill in the blank, whichever church. Maybe not. But it was directed to the other churches, and it started from Ephesus. So that's just a little footnote there for you in relating to um, the, the, the letter being to the Ephesians in here at the prologue saying to the saints who are at Ephesus. Um, much places that's uh, in the older manuscripts that's left off, but um, that's the reason why. Now just a bit about the reading as we close, or excuse me, the greeting. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, charis, is at the heart of Paul's theology. Okay? Charis is at the heart of Paul's theology. And this is what it means in a nutshell. It's unmerited favor of God. That's what grace is. Unmerited favor of God. The fullness of God's favor in salvation. That's what grace means. The kindness of God towards undeserving sinners in providing salvation through Christ's sacrificial death. That's what grace means. It appears 12 times in this letter. This letter is just rich with chorus. Grace. It's full of it. Again, this is not an introductory cliche here like, um, uh, you know, like, how's it going? Good on you. You ever hear that? I don't even know what that means. You know, I mean, that's a cool kid thing. To, you know, I'm, I'm going to be up too old for that. Good on you. <coughs> this is not a cliche. This is God granting salvation. To undeserving sinners. <coughs> and really it comes, this is how it would read literally. So this is a wish from Paul. The verb's not in there in the original. You don't see a verb. But, uh, but it, 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 should, it should connotate this way. May 
grace be with you. May this church be filled with real, genuine followers of Jesus Christ. May, may grace be with you. That's, what it's, that's the way it would read the recipients. That's the way it comes to us. As it comes to us here, Paul is saying throughout the echoes of time, may grace be with you. That's the welcome. As we begin to read Ephesians as word of grace, as we begin to work through this book, Paul introduces himself as an authoritative apostle of Christ. And then he says to everyone here, may grace be with you. May you really know the salvation that is found in Christ alone. Undeserved favor of God and salvation. That is no cliche of an introduction. So we are who we are by grace. That's the reality. We are who we are by grace. All blessing comes by grace. And he says grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's peace? Peace is a reine. That's um, really a Hebrew term. That has a Hebrew stem to it. It just means well-being in the Hebrew. The end of warlike relationship. And the establishment of ongoing well-being between God and man is what it now has moved to in the Greek. That's far more than just wishing you well. It's wishing you that this warlike relationship would come to an end and there would be an establishment of salvation stemming from God extended to sinners. That's what peace means here. Peace. Peace with God. Peace from God. That brings about peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace from God produces peace with God and enables believers to live peaceably with one another. That's why we see all throughout the New Testament, there is this emphasis on our lives together, our lives being lived out in love and selfless sacrifice for one another because we have received this peace that doesn't belong to fallen man innately. It comes through the mercy and grace and salvation of Christ, where now you have peace with God, which enables you to have peace with one another. This removal of the selfish sinfulness replaced by a self-giving sacrifice that stems from your overwhelming reality of grace that's been extended to you in Christ. That's how it works. Peace with God is the effect of God's word of grace. It's peace with God. Grace and peace rooted and founded in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's, all these eons later, hoping for here. Grace and peace. Founded in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, may it be true of us. Oh, Lord, may it be true of us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for so great a salvation. We ask that you would take this book of Ephesians and that you would fill our hearts with your truth, that we may know you more fully, that we may um, relish in and treasure and live out and explore and, and, uh, and long for and hunger for and um, pray over these riches and exercise and uh, disperse generously these riches that are granted to us in Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.